What Jesus says isn't hard to understand. It's just hard to accept, isn't it? Uh, Today, Jesus says, my life and death must be received by you for eternal life. You can receive that or you can reject that and find your own way to heaven. Good luck. You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. What has been said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable? Have you heard that? Many people look to Jesus, or maybe to their Bibles for that matter, and what they'll do is they'll look at it with something in each hand. In one hand, they'll have a highlighter, and they'll look at the words of Jesus or the the scriptures, and they'll highlight what they like. They'll underline, they'll circle, they'll underscore the things that they agree with, the things that make them feel good. But then on the other hand, what can often happen is we look at the words of Jesus, we look at the difficult sayings of scripture, and instead of a highlighter, we take an eraser. And we minimize or ignore or even sometimes erase um, the words of Jesus. Uh, One of the founding fathers, I can't remember, Jefferson, I believe, but one of them actually took out the miracles in the Bible. He had the eraser Bible. He removed much of what he didn't agree with. And so many of us will do the same thing with the words of Jesus that are, well, difficult. Uh, This week, I came across what's called the plush Jesus doll. It's advertised as, quote, a huggable, washable, talking Jesus doll. It actually sells on Hallmark for $15.95. Sporting those fuzzy dreadlocks and that satiny beard, Talking Jesus is said to recite, quote, actual scripture verses to introduce children of all ages to the wisdom of the Bible. And so Sojourner's Magazine was commenting on this product, and this is what they said. They they said, when you squeeze Jesus' heart, His sayings include, I love you, and I have an exciting plan for your life. Or, your life matters so much to me. Which aren't actually phrases found in the Bible. They're not actually scripture. In fact, the 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 only actual message that the plus Jesus doll says that scripture is John 15, 12, where he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you have purchased the Jesus plush doll for your kids, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to make you feel bad. Uh, That's fine if maybe you bought it for yourself. I'm not sure. I'm not here to judge you. But uh, the reviews on Hallmark's website got to me. These are actual reviews. I'm not making this up. I'm not not, like being fake here and trying to be funny. These are actual reviews. I'm going to let them speak for themselves. Here's one of the reviews. I'm very happy with my purchase of the Jesus doll. They have dolls for every other superhero. So why not Jesus? Hmm, interesting. How about this one? Well-made, quality material. The face of Jesus is done well. It would be nice to have a Mother Mary doll as well. Hmm, all right. How about this one? Instead of for the kids, I bought this doll for myself. I love seeing it when I get up in the morning, coming home and going to bed at night. It makes my day. Well, that's nice. It's not going to make your day on one particular day, the day of judgment. (laughs) Uh, How about this? I have a friend who's difficult to buy for. This plus Jesus is perfect. I've taken photos of Jesus engaged in a plethora of activities, including turning water into wine, like Elf on the Shelf, but with Jesus. I'm giving her the doll and plan on sending her a photo each week of Jesus and his 
shenanigans. Yeah, how does that theme song go? The elf on the shelf is watching you. So is the real Jesus. He's watching you. <laughs> how about this one? I was so happy to be able to give Jesus to the child along with the bunny and the candy shell. Okay, I can't even do it. I can't even read anymore. Jesus the plush doll. Pull the string, squeeze the heart. He says everything you've ever wanted him to say to you, how wonderful you are. But what about the time that, or the times that Jesus says difficult things? Listen, church, no matter how you look at Jesus, one thing you cannot do this morning, one thing you cannot do is only take his loving statements and then edit out the more difficult statements that he made. What do you do with the hard sayings of Jesus? I'm not asking you that rhetorically. I'm asking you personally, like literally, what do you do with the difficult sayings of Jesus? Uh, do you ignore them? Do you soften them? Do you dismiss them? When Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26 and 27, what do you do with this? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and that pretty much covers everyone, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What do we do with that? Later in that same discussion, in verse 33, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What about the time he said this to someone, Matthew chapter 8? In Matthew 8, 21, 22, uh, this disciple comes up to him, not one of the 12, says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I've never said that to someone who's asking me to officiate a funeral. I've never said, hey, let the dead bury their own dead. What do we do with these statements? Hate my father and mother and my wife and my children and my brothers? Hate my own life? Take up my cross? Renounce everything I have? Let the dead bury their own dead? Who does this guy think he is? Well, 10 bucks says the plush Jesus doesn't say any of those particular statements. What do you do with the hard statements of Jesus? Do you dismiss them? Do you repackage them? Listen, Christianity is not inviting Jesus to follow us after we pray a little prayer. It's surrendering our entire lives and our will to him. And listen, it's coming to an end of our very selves. It's taking up our cross. And in the first century, when you took up a cross, it meant that you were about to die. You were bringing your means of torture and execution up the hill. And so all of my appetites, all of my dreams, my desires, everything I wanted is ending in this moment. And from now on, it's not about me, but it's about my own death. Listen, Christianity is not exchanging a gold necklace for a cross necklace. It's not like we change our presets from 106.5 to 90.5. It's not like we trade in uh, getting drunk with alcohol and now we're going to trade that and just drink a bunch of sweet tea. That is not uh, what it means. It's not saying, well, instead of public school, we'll just homeschool. If that's all Christianity is to you, if that's all it is, you're missing the entire point. A.W. Tozer says this, we'll open today with a Tozer quote and close with it, another quote. He said this, the new cross, the new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it's a friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean, fun, and innocent enjoyment, the new cross. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure, only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing body songs and drinking hard liquor. 
Notice this, the accent is still on enjoyment, though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. Many of us would say, you know, Jesus wants me to feel good about myself and feel loved and feel accepted. No, 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 no. Jesus invites you to come enter into a relationship with himself, but to enter into that relationship, it requires that you must die. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? What do we do with the hard sayings of Jesus? In our text this morning, we have perhaps one of the hardest sayings Jesus ever utters. We're going to see Jesus together speaking to the religious leaders, the Jews, and explaining who he is and what the gospel really entails. And my fear is that in Lakewood Ranch in 2018, that we could possibly have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. That we would use that phrase Christian, or we would use this idea of going to church, and we would miss the entire reality of the gospel. The gospel is glorious good news, but it's also offensive. It's offensive. Uh, We learn in 1 Corinthians 1 on the screen that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, no, it's the power of God. The cross is foolishness. It is It is offensive. And as Jesus speaks these words to the Jews, everyone listening has a really hard time with it. Everyone listening. Not just the Jews, not just the followers, but also Jesus' 12 disciples. And what was a large crowd gets thinned out by the reality of Jesus' words. Now, if you and I were in this story, and we were one of the 12, and we hear Jesus saying some of the things that he's going to say today, you and I, I guarantee, would have been like, okay, wait, hold on, time out. Jesus, (laughs) You're not really actually saying that, are you? We would get a PR manager, and we'd say, okay, we need to kind of change the way that Jesus is using social media. He can't say that. You can't say that, Jesus. Uh, let's just be more general. Don't be so specific. Let's, let's be a little more politically correct. Uh, let's, let's be a little more cryptic so people don't exactly understand what you're saying. But what we learned today uh, is three things about Jesus' words. I want you to jot these down if you're taking note. Please take a picture of this or jot these down. We're going to learn today that Jesus' words here and everywhere are personal, not general. They're personal, not general. Secondly, we're going to learn that Jesus' words are profitable. They're not always politically correct. Do you know what I mean by politically correct? What I mean, I don't mean, I'm not talking about politics. When you say politically correct, it means I'm going to try to say something that makes everyone happy and it doesn't offend anyone. That's politically correct. I'm just going to say something that no one will be offended by. Thirdly, Jesus' words are prophetic, we'll find out. They're not cryptic. They're not confusing. But they do speak to something very specific. All right? So that's where we're going today. What we'll learn today is the cross may be offensive, but listen, sometimes things that are hard to hear are true. Sometimes things that are true are offensive. Why? Because they're the most beneficial. We could say it like this. Sometimes what brings life is the hardest thing to hear. Amen? Sometimes what brings life is really the hardest thing to hear. Husbands, if you're thinking of being unfaithful with your wife, this may be hard to hear, but you're sinning against your family, against Jesus, and against your wife. And you need to stop sinning, even in your heart going towards that. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But that's going to give you life. Hey, if you're starting to get into narcotics, stop. You need to cling to Jesus. You need to turn away from that sin. That's hard for you to hear today, but it's going to bring you life. And so sometimes the hardest thing to hear uh, is what will bring us life. Now look first at Jesus' personal words in verse 52. Look at where it says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this man? That's very similar to what Nicodemus said back in John 3. How can these things be? How? How is this possible? 
Well, what are they talking about? They're, they're actually referencing verse 51. So look in your Bibles up. Uh, we looked at it really briefly last week at our family service. We were kind of uh, doing the fast drive-by version of exposition last week. We were zooming through it. But look at verse 51 again. Verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, up to that point, the Jews were kind of grumbling, kind of complaining, kind of um, a little mumbling. But here, when he says that, that sets them off. Why? Well, because this is a big deal. This is a horrific suggestion to the Jews uh, if they believe for a half second that Jesus was recommending actually eating his body and drinking his actual blood. Cannibalism. They would have, they would, alarms were going off in their head, all right? Uh, on the screen, Leviticus chapter 17, God commanded Moses to teach the children of Israel that if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement uh, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, okay? So that's a very important verse. You weren't to take blood from someone else and ingest it, right? Now, the, by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses take that to mean blood transfusion. Um, they take that to mean that. But you were never to eat the flesh of another human. You were never to drink the blood of another human. And so the Jews are still thinking on these terms of literal physical bread and literal physical body. And so when Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh, they're picturing cannibalism. Okay? They're, they're picturing vampires and twilight. This is not something that I want to be picturing when I think about uh, following Jesus. So certainly, certainly Jesus would have corrected them and said, no, 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 no. Man, I'm so glad I heard you guys arguing. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. No, 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 no. I'm not saying literally eat my body and blood. I'm not saying that. Uh, let me correct you. Is that what he does? No. Look what Jesus goes on. He takes them deeper into it. Look at verse 53. Most assuredly, remember last week? Those are statements where he says, verily, verily, or amen, amen. Everything I'm telling you is to be taken to the bank. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Jesus goes beyond the statement about eating his flesh and says, yeah, on top of that, uh, you need to drink my blood. And uh, if you don't do that, then you have no life in you. Eat my body and drink my blood. Now, when he mentions his body, he's mentioning his life. And when he mentions his blood, he's mentioning his death. Uh, back in verse 40, notice this parallel verse. So rewind a little to verse 40. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up uh, on the last day. Very similar to verse 54, where he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life, and I'll raise you up. So what he's saying is that if you would receive me, believe me, that's the same as eating my, my flesh and drinking my blood. Okay, so I need to point out here that when Jesus says this specific thing, he's not referring to communion. He's not referring to the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, when we come together. Okay, this is not John the Apostle's attempt at sneaking in sacramental uh, propaganda into his gospel account. At the Last Supper, remember Jesus gives the, the bread and the cup and he had not yet gone to the cross. 
This is kind of a picture of what he was going to do at the cross. But this here is something different. Jesus is saying right here that faith can be illustrated as receiving his body and blood, placing our trust in him, specifically in his life and death, for our salvation. And those who do that will have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. Here's how one commentator puts it on the screen. He says that he himself, in the virtue of his sacrificial death, is the spiritual and eternal life of men. And that unless men voluntarily appropriate to themselves this death in its sacrificial virtue, so as to become the very life and nourishment of their inner man, if they don't do that, they have no spiritual and eternal life at all. Not as if his death were the only thing of value, but it is what gives all else in Christ's incarnate person, life, and office their whole value to us as sinners. We mentioned last week this idea of eating, how if you take something into your mouth, you're kind of, you're, you're bringing it into your body, and, and we use phrases that are similar, right? We use phrases like, now I'm just devouring this book, or hey, we, we're binge watching. There's the idea of binging. Binge, we're watching, we're binging on the new Jack Ryan series. It's about Jim Halpert who fights terrorists. Or, or I could eat up my grandkids. All right, those are all references to gorging, to eating something, taking it into our lives and making it something of importance to us. And Jesus is saying that's what it's like to believe. We're not talking about just mental assent where you're just kind of like on the fringe going, yeah, I kind of like what Jesus said and yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that he said some true things. I mean, the demons do that. The demons believe, and James tells us they, they shudder. So we're talking about appropriating what Jesus has said into our lives, to take him in. This is very personal, not general. It has a universal invitation, but few will actually receive Jesus. Look how personal the next two verses are, 56, 57. He who, that's the personal part, he who, so speaking to you and I, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I will abide in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Wow. Now, uh, I just wanted to spend a minute on this because I think it's helpful to note that when Roman Catholics hear this section of Scripture, they immediately say that is communion. And so I want to make sure we understand the four different views, and there's some other smaller views here, but the four main views of communion. Uh, so if you are taking notes today, I want you to jot these down. We're going to use some big words so you get your money's worth today. Uh, so uh, here's the first view. The Roman Catholic view is called transubstantiation. Can you guys try that one? No. Uh, good enough. That's close. The idea here is real substance. That's how you want, want you to remember it. Real substance. They would say that the substance is transformed into the physical body and blood at the moment of the priest's blessing. They would say it's literally Jesus' body and blood. Okay, that is not to be confused with Luther's view. Martin Luther's view was called consubstantiation. Try it out. Yeah, you did better on that one. Consubstantiation. Um, how many syllables is that? I'm not keeping count, but there's more than two. Uh, Luther and his followers never called it that. That was kind of a, applied or tagged to them. But in this view, the idea is real presence. Christ's body and blood are present, quote, in, with, or under the elements. They would say the real body and blood of Christ are present with these sacraments. Um, Luther explained it this way. He said there, just picture this analogy of an iron rod being placed into the fire. And in that moment, both are united in the red hot iron. Okay, the fire and the iron, yet they're both distinct. 
That was his way of, he would say the blood of Christ is present as water in a sponge is present. Well, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli came along and he challenged Luther's uh, concept of consubstantiation. And many people call his view memorialism. This is also known as real absence. The idea here is that Christ's body and blood are not present at all. It's just a memorial. Uh, most, uh, most common view in evangelicalism is that view, uh, but it may be a little bit misleading because every one of those views believes that it's a memorial, every one of them. Uh, but I would ask this, is it really a memorial? Is that all it is? Are we just eating bread and drinking a, a glass of, of grape juice at dinner? We go, oh yeah, hey, hey, this is kind of like the Last Supper. Hey, thanks, Lord. Is that what it is? Or when we come together, are we saying there's something important here? Uh, it was a lack of reverence for the Lord's table that brought about premature death in the Corinthian church that Paul addresses. So Martin Luther and Zwingli had kind of a, a little 1600s fight club uh, at the Marburg Castle in 1529, and they were debating this topic out. And, uh, and I think it's important to debate this and think about it, because behind your view of communion is your view of Christology. Like we have the hypostatic union, we have the idea behind um, communion about the nature of Jesus and what he accomplished at the cross. So um, this is an important thing. So the fourth view, I think, is the most biblical. John Calvin came along and talked about receptionism. And that's where we would say spiritual presence, not a literal presence of the body and blood, but a spiritual idea. Many Reformed and Anglican churches would affirm that Christ is not present literally in the elements, but he's spiritually there. So when we receive the elements... We are saying spiritually, there's something happening here. That I am, I am partaking of the bread and the cup, and there's more than symbolism. This is signifying to me a spiritual reality. I'm feeding on Christ, and I'm coming back, as we say often here, it's all about Jesus. I'm coming, I'm saying, this is all that I have, and I'm feeding on him, and this is going to help nourish and edify and encourage me as I reflect on the cross. That's why we do that, not weekly, but monthly. Um, and so I think it's important that we partake and we remind ourselves and renew our minds that all we have is Christ. Nothing is more close or intimate than taking literal food into your body and making it your very own. Okay, this, this is probably what becomes part of your body. Some may say, well, what about a sexual relationship? Well, there's nothing more intimate and personal than eating food because the food becomes a part of your very body. The nutrients in that cheeseburger or lack of nutrients... Uh, I heard someone's doing Septemberger, which is where you eat a, a hamburger every day of the month of September. How did I miss out on this? I don't know how this was a thing I missed, but when you eat that cheeseburger, all the nutrients, the carbs, the proteins, even the nitrogen that was in the cow, all of that is received into your body and put to work within the cells of your body, into every portion of your body. And what Jesus is saying is, when you receive me into your life, listen, there's an intimacy and there's a closeness that would be compared to partaking in a meal. This is not, I show up at church on Sunday, I sing some songs that I don't really know, and then the guy gets up and yells, and then we give some money, and we have some coffee, and then we kind of shake hands that are sweaty, and then we leave. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about receiving Jesus. And he says in verse 56 that the one who believes in him will abide in him, and he will abide in them. By the way, the word for abide in verse 56, is used by John more than any other New Testament writer. We'll get to this in John chapter 15, where he says, abide in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Not to call anyone out, but is there someone here today that you've been cut off from the vine and you're trying to produce fruit 
in yourself, without spending time with Jesus, without abiding in him. And you're thinking, I can just grunt and, and kind of try to bear fruit apart from abiding in the vine. You need to abide in him. In fact, we'll, we'll get more into it later, but here's what the word abide means. The word abide can be translated to continue, to remain in, to keep on, to live, to dwell, or to make one's home at. I love that. To make one's home at. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but when we invite people into our home, there's kind of different levels of that. There's the front door. And sometimes salesmen will come to the door. They're not getting into my house. I'm going to open the door and go, we're not interested. I'm turning the sprinklers on. you got 30 seconds. And I shut the door. Just kidding. I don't do that. Just once. <clears throat> uh, we may receive some people, hey, come on in. Neighborhood kids, come on into the front foyer. That's great. Now take your shoes off, please. Uh, no, we'll, we'll receive people into our foyer if they're dropping off a package. We'll receive people into our living room and we'll be sitting down. We'll put our feet up and we'll relax with them. Uh, we'll, but, but where's that real intimacy? It's in the, the dining room, in the kitchen. Like, come into the kitchen. Let's partake of a meal. Let's sit down. That's where true intimacy is. And Jesus says, that's where I want to be with you. I, don't just open the door and shut it. Don't just receive me into the foyer. I want to abide with you. I want to make myself at home in your life. The one who believes in Jesus will remain in him, abide in him. Now look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. He's speaking of himself. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, we learned last week that Jesus is comparing himself with the manna in the wilderness. Um, they enjoyed that meal, but they're dead now. And so if we receive the true manna from heaven, Jesus, we will experience not just a nice meal, but eternal life. These words, church, are incredibly personal. They're not general. Jesus is not saying here that I'm giving salvation to all who exist. No, eternal life does not come to those who exist, but to those who believe. Amen? There's a false teaching out there called universalism. And it has nothing to do with the Orlando theme park, Harry Potter world, roller coasters. That's not the idea. On the screen, here's what universalism is. It's the belief that all people will be saved. That is a false teaching. Um, often with universalists, there's a denial of a literal hell. And universalists believe that love wins and that we're all just going to be saved from, from uh, not, um, not hell, but just from our sin. And so they formalized in the 1700s and they kind of came together with the Unitarian Church. And in 1961, they formed a new denomination called the Unitarian Universalist Association. You may have seen their, their church, and I'm quoting church because just because someone says they're a church doesn't mean they are. Uh, they have about 175,000 members. Universalists or Unitarians are in direct opposition to the, the Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, they're against the doctrine of original sin. They're against the deity of Christ. They're against eternal punishment. They're against the vicarious atonement of Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means they are not Christian. All right, so if you drive by a Unitarian Universalist church, they're not Christian. And I can say that unashamedly. Salvation has been provided for all, but not all will be saved. John 1.12 says, only to those who receive him, who believe in his name, will he give the right to be called children of God. So Jesus speaks very personally here. If you today, sir, ma'am, if you would believe in me, he says, then I'll abide in you and I'll bring you eternal life and I'll raise you up at the last day. That option, that offer is available for us this morning. It's very personal. You may be a young person here today and your parents are Christian. 
Your parents have made that decision. But we don't see in the scripture where God says, I've got grandchildren. So as long as your parents are in the kingdom, you're good to go. No, we are to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You today must receive Jesus. You must believe. So not only are Jesus' words personal, not general, but secondly, they're profitable, not politically correct. We're going to move a lot faster. Look at verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. All right, so somewhere in the story, um, earlier the people arrive from Tiberias, and they're looking for Jesus. This is the day after they were fed, this miraculous feeding. And so this big crowd is looking for Jesus. They find him teaching in the synagogue. And the religious leaders, the Jews, are arguing with Jesus. And so they're back looking for more miracles for more food. Uh, so Jesus had lots of followers. Remember, a follower is a disciple. But then he had very close followers. We would call them the twelve. So look at verse 60. As he's teaching this teaching about receiving the body uh, the, 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 the flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus into your life. Verse 60 says, many of his disciples. How many? Many. many. Not a few, not a handful. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? The word for hard in the Greek in verse 60, this is hard can be translated hard, harsh, uh, demanding, or difficult. Remember when Jesus, remember guys, when Jesus spoke to Saul of Tarsus, and he said, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, and it's hard for you to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, that's the word that he used. It's hard. This is something that's difficult. This is not easy. They're saying, hey, Jesus, we're having a tough time with this one. We want you to speak words that make us feel good. Do we have a plush Jesus doll that we can bring out? We want to squeeze them and have them say things that we like. This is hard. And give us some hope, not a suggestion to eat your flesh and drink your blood. They're offended by Jesus. The word for offend in the Greek on the screen uh, is the word scandalizo. What do you think that means in English? Any guesses? Uh, it's where we get the word scandal or scandalize. But here's what it actually means. This is fascinating. The word scandalizo means to cause to give up believing, to make someone no longer believe, or to cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what has been said or done. I want to be careful to make this point today. Jesus is not being a shock jock. He's not trying to say something just to offend, but he's saying, this crowd's here with the wrong motives. I'm going to be specific. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to let my words be profitable so that people know what they're signing up for. But notice the next two verses, verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Uh, here Jesus knew that they were offended about the fact that he said he came down from heaven. And they're having a really hard time with this concept of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But what he's saying here is, well, what would have happened if you saw me ascend back up to heaven? You had a tough time with that statement. What, what if you actually saw it? You're trusting in the flesh, and the flesh profits nothing. I'm not giving you the flesh. I want to speak life, and I want to speak spirit. So, church, we can rationally infer that if Jesus speaks life and spirit, then words that contradict Jesus are flesh and death, aren't they? If words contradict Jesus' words, they're flesh and and their death. So when Satan's whispering to you, and I don't mean literally Satan, you understand what I mean by that. 
when you're being tempted to walk away from the words of Jesus, from the way of Jesus, that's going to bring flesh, which God does not recognize and is not pleasing to him, and it's going to bring death, spiritual or even physical death. Most of us don't like to hear hard things, but sometimes what brings life is actually the hardest thing to hear. Most of us wouldn't walk up to someone that we don't know who's smoking a cigarette and knock it out of their mouth and say, smoking's going to kill you. We wouldn't do that. Well, maybe one of you would. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know some of you. Maybe you'd do that. But if your father had surgery and was recovering from lung cancer and he kind of sneaks out back in the porch and lights up, you know that you and I would have the boldness to go up and slap the cigarette out of his mouth. Dad, what are you doing? Stop it. You're going to die. Quit it. We today are living in a world of political correctness and we find ourselves as Christians scared to say certain things, don't we? We're scared to say, and I'll go on record saying it, promote it, put it out there. I'll say it. I'll have the boldness to do it. We need to have the boldness to say God created us distinctly male and female. That sexuality is a preference, not an orientation. Adultery, pornography, it's sin. Actually, there is a thing called sin, and we need to call it sin. Uh, unborn fetuses are alive. God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorced people. The Bible is the infallible, unchanging word of God that we can build our lives upon. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We've got to have the boldness to speak like that. I mean, if this building were to catch on fire today, and the only means of escape were the exit behind the screen here, and I were to, to say to you, right, uh, something that was very exclusive, you've got to exit the building through that door and that door alone. The building's on fire, and it's not. But if I were to do that, is that loving or is that hateful? The answer is yes, yes. That is hateful. The word for hate means to reject. So I'm going to reject that exit. Those two doors don't go anywhere, so you're definitely going to die if you go through those two doors. And that exit's hit or miss. So, guys, the only way of escape is through that door. Uh, I'm not going to shrink back and be afraid and kind of sneak out. Come on, let's get my family, and we're going to get out of here, and you guys are up. No, I'm going to love you enough and hate myself enough that I'm going to give you the honest truth. And we need to know that when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that's offensive, and that's exclusive, and that's also salvation, right? And so Jesus' words are life and their spirit, and you, like the people in Jesus' day hearing this, may be offended by what Jesus says. But sometimes what brings life is the hardest thing to hear. Jesus' words are profitable. They're not politically correct. But lastly, Jesus' words are prophetic, not cryptic. Look at verse 64. I want you to look at the prophecy here. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. He's not being cryptic. He's being actually very prophetic. John tells us, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many. These were what I call the fickle followers. They're the it depends disciples. You know the it depends? Like, hey, are you going to follow Jesus? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it depends. Is there something, do I get something out of it? Do I get something monetarily, uh, spiritually, uh, emotionally, physically? Yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but, you know, it depends. Not true believers, not true followers. Listen, they're not drawn by their heavenly father, they're drawn by their hunger. 
And maybe that describes some of us, that we're drawn by what we think Jesus can do for us, and we want to take something from, I want something from Jesus today. I've come, thank you very much, to get something out of church today. And so thank you very much, I'm here to receive something. Rather than, I just want Jesus. He's enough. And and even if it's difficult to hear, I'll, I'll swallow that. I'll take that. I'll handle that. And so then look at verse 67. Jesus then turns to the 12. And he says, do you also want to go away? What about you guys? And I love what Simon Peter says. (laughs) Answering for all of them, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's acknowledging what Jesus just said. You have the spirit in life. And then he says in verse 69, also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is one of those high moments for Peter. He has a couple low moments that'll be highlighted in the gospel of John. This is the high moment. Uh, speaking for the 12, he says, Lord, where else can we go? Like, if we leave now, we're sealing our doom. You alone have the true words of eternal life. And I love in verse 69, Peter gets the order down correctly. We've come to believe and know. Guys, that's the order. That's, That's the order. It's that I believe and then I know. Sometimes we misunderstand that. And we think we need to know, then we'll believe. No, we believe and then we know. Faith precedes knowledge. Peter's shining here, but he does say one thing that's incorrect. He's representing the 12 and saying, hey, all of us are believing and all of us are following. And Jesus says, actually, verse 70, did I not choose you the 12 and one of you is a devil? Now, John tells us, verse 70, when he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the 12. This is a prophetic statement about Judas Iscariot that we'll come to see in play later in John's gospel. Jesus says in verse 70, one of you is a a diabolos. The Greek word means slanderer, false accuser, uh, probably used here to the Hebrew counterpart Satan, which means adversary. Jesus is giving a prophetic foreshadowing of one of these 12 disciples that he calls a devil. And John explains that's Judas. He's the one that's gonna betray Jesus. He was not a disciple. Don't get this confused. He may have been called one of the 12. He was not an actual follower of Jesus. He never placed his faith in Jesus. He was never regenerated. We know later the disciples will have Jesus breathe the Holy Spirit on them after the resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. But he is not indwelt. He's not born again. He's not a follower of Jesus. He's not placed his faith in him. Jesus is not being cryptic here. He's being prophetic. And we, this morning, can trust in the words of Jesus He's not going to be cryptic to us. He's not going to speak something, listen, that will mislead you or confuse you. What Jesus speaks is crystal clear, even when it's veiled in the form of a parable, which was intended to veil the meaning so that those who wouldn't understand couldn't understand. But when he wants you to understand, it's very clear. See, church, on the screen, what Jesus says isn't hard to understand. It's just hard to accept, isn't it? It's not hard to understand. It's hard to receive. It's hard to accept. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven. You can receive or reject that statement. Uh, Today, Jesus says, my life and death must be received by you for eternal life. You can receive that or you can reject that and find your own way to heaven. Good luck. Jesus says here to the 12, one of you is an adversary. One of you is the devil. And the 11 could have listened or they could have turned a deaf ear. To believe Jesus is to receive what he said. Even the hard things. D.A. Carson says it this way. One cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. 
For truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus' words. Before we close this morning, I want to kind of bring this home with a point of application. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll put the verse on the screen, said this to the Corinth gathering. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Notice this. I don't know if we have it on the screen, but listen to this. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me say that again. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Is it possible to empty the cross of its power? I didn't think so, but Paul seemed to think so. How? Through words of eloquence. We're going to dress this up. This is an instrument of torture and death. We're going to make it a little more palatable, a little more, a little more acceptable, less offensive. We empty the cross of its power. You and I can empty the cross of its power this morning through the fear of man. As we're afraid to speak the truth, we can empty the cross of its power. Let me just kind of speak for Jesus. Let me tell you what he means. We can empty the cross of its power by living a contrary life to the cross, all while supposedly saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. Through self-centeredness, It's not Christ living in us, uh, but us bringing Jesus with us like a plush accessory doll who keeps us comfortable and yet at the same time an enemy of the cross. And I want to encourage us, church, to not empty the cross of its power, to let Jesus speak for himself and to take him at his word. In fact, I want to invite the band forward and we're going to close in um, song. I want you guys to go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled here for a minute. We're going to close considering our great Redeemer, Jesus. I'm going to just ask that you not move around, just get settled. What do you do? I asked you several times today, what do you do? What will you do with the words of Jesus, all the words of Jesus? Jesus comes to you this morning and says, if you would come after me, you need to deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. You need to have a love for me that far surpasses your love for yourself your love for your family, even your love for your own life? Are you willing to come and take up your cross? Those who took up their cross in the first century, it didn't mean bearing a burden like, man, my mother-in-law is such a cross to bear. That's not what Jesus was speaking about. You took up your cross and you ascended the hill of your own execution. The man carrying the cross had no plans for the weekend, no travel plans next year, No stock or investment portfolios that he was interested in. No, the cross bearer completely died. And all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all their desires for themselves and for the future were utterly removed. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's life for me now. My life is now defined by the cross. It's now defined by what Jesus has done at Calvary. And Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. And he's given us life. And he's given us words that are life and spirit. The question is, will you receive that? Will you follow him? I mentioned we opened with a Tozer quote. Let me close this one talked about the new cross. How about the old cross? The old cross, he said, is the symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. 
The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He's not coming back. He was going to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. And Jesus says, that's what I've done. If you would follow me, that's what it requires. And sadly, like the disciples who turned away, there may be some of us this morning that maybe by our own admission, maybe by our lack of obedience, we're turning away from following Jesus when we realize the cost that it's involved. And Jesus says to you this morning, do you, do you also? Do you, do you also want to go? Do you want to go away? And you and I have that opportunity to reject him or to receive him. Will we, like the 12, say, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. My pastor's challenge this morning is simply this. Take Jesus at his word, all of his word. God is sovereignly at work, regenerating us, giving us life, but we must receive his words. My words are spirit and life. Will you receive them? Even when they're difficult to bear, even when they are hard to hear. They're not hard to understand, but they're hard to accept. Today, I challenge you, church, to submit your life to Christ. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.